0: podcast is part of the Sports Social Podcast Network.
1: On this episode of Red Inca, we look at the broad-shouldered David Visa, a journeyman who became the story at this World Cup. To chat about him, I got someone who just finished a
0: feature on him. My name is C.S. Chiwanza, and I'm... A- Writer and podcaster based in Johannesburg, South Africa.
1: We talked golf swings, LB Morkel, Namibia cricket, Colpac, South African all-rounders, and how Visa changed his career with the help of baseball. Have I
0: pronounced David Visa correctly? Yes, you have. I've been trying to get it right myself for the past few days.
1: It just looks so much like it should be wise, and someone put a typo in that my brain can't get around that it's not even a W like that it's something else altogether. I find him a really interesting cricketer because for the longest time, I would say most hardcore cricket fans know who he is and had absolutely no opinion on him at all, right? Like unless you were like a Sussex fan or a Titans fan, maybe briefly some of the other teams he played for, there's no real reason to ever have a strong opinion on him. And then through the World Cup and the weirdness of that, suddenly he does. So how does he end up with Namibia being that he was a South African cricketer?
0: Well, firstly, his father is Namibian, is of Namibian origins. You know, if you understand, you know, the closeness of Namibia and South Africa, you know, it it Mm. was easier for his father, his grandfather to migrate to South Africa for better opportunities and stuff like that. And that's how he ended up being born in South Africa.
1: And how did he end up in the team? Well, after he had given
0: up on his career with Cricket South Africa, he signed a Copac contract. And then uh, after a couple of years, he got better. He improved. And then, you know, it just happened that the guys he played with at Titans, Albi Morkel and Pierre De Bruyne, they called him up. Look, dude, we have this thing happening here. We have a team that we are building We need someone with some experience and someone who can help us to form a good team. You know, shepherd some of these guys to become better players. It's a world stage that walked a long journey and now they needed sort of a talisman, if I may say. Mm. And that's how um, Albi ended up messaging David.
1: So Albi and Pierre were both from Titans, which is where David played. Is that right? So they all knew each other really well. And then they went off to coach Namibia a couple of years ago.
0: Yes, yes. And one of the things that David says is throughout his career at Titans, he was particularly close with Albie. And uh, Albie, I will tell you, everyone I've spoken to from the Titans area or the Pretoria area, they speak highly of Albie Morkel. He was one great leader. He was so much in touch with the people he led. And David just happened to be one of them. And David sort of looked up to Albie Morkel. He essentially molded his game after Albie Morkel's game. And so that relationship helped everything just come together.
1: I should also point out, for those who don't remember, Albie morkel was probably one of the most underrated T20 players of all time. And I was still trying to get him to play for St. Lucia in 2018 because just a phenomenal player in T20 cricket. But sadly, I couldn't get him over the line over there. Tell me about Visa. So I know who he is and I know how he plays, but I don't know much about him. One of the things I didn't realize, although obviously anyone who'd watched this World Cup would know that he's a specimen, is what we would say in Australia, or a unit, depending on, you know, uh, which part of the country you're from. He's an absolute tank, but he's also a fitness freak. It's not just a natural thing with him, is it? No, he's,
0: how can I put it? You know, I will not go as far as say that he's uh, got ADHD or something like that, but, you know, he's hyperactive someone with a lot of energy he's energetic you know he has all this energy that's just bubbling inside of him and the best way he knows how to contain that energy is to work out he spends time in the gym he has tried to slow down now as he's growing older you know because he needs to look after his body more and stuff like that but still talking to him you get a sense that let me say this you know i had a chat with kitten jennings And then soon afterwards, it was David Visser. I got the same thing from both of them. They are restless people. You know, for them standing still, just being idle, feels like going backwards.
1: Yeah. They cannot keep still. No, it's really interesting because he is 36. And at that point in your career... You know, sometimes players get a little bit rounder around the edges and change their physique. And as you said, he has to start looking after his body. I mean, 36 is quite old for a, I don't know, what, what would you call him? He's probably a batting all-rounder. But either way, he's a seam bowling all-rounder, isn't he? Mm-hmm. That's a, quite an old age for someone who has done those two skills. But he wasn't always an all-rounder, was he? No. Well, it's quite funny that he's
0: still bowling at 36. Han Bardin stopped bowling quite earlier because you know the problems with fitness he has to keep his body match fit and then david is still bowling is still working on his bowling and according to him he started as a spin
1: bowler all the best ones do (laughs) <laughs> and then he got big and massive and strong And he thought, why am I coming in off two steps But I could just wang the ball at people's heads <laughs> Exactly,
0: but he <it> was <laughs> never very, very fast But uh, no. And no. then he had to work on his batting You know, one thing that I think about David is Because he was a titans You know, titans was one of the best sides Dur- During his time He had to have a special skill Being an all-rounder was a special skill already he couldn't just get in as a bowler or as a batter. He had to develop both skills to be of value. Otherwise, he wouldn't have had a career.
1: He's also, like, when you look at him physically and you think it was the sort of player he is, he's sort of like a quintessential South African white ball player, isn't he? Like, I had a look. I think he played, what, about four or five one days, maybe six one days. Obviously, played a little bit more T20 for South Africa. But you look at him and you go, yeah, I can see why you are a good player, but also why they had just a bunch of other people who could do that job. I and mean, you've talked about LB Morkel. You've got so many other players like Pretorius and Morris. And you mentioned the other guy before, the smaller guy. Yeah, I did Yeah, but I didn't. So they've had a bunch of these guys who have either batting seam or all-rounders or bowling all-rounders who can bat a little bit. You could see why, even though it's quite clear he's got a lot of talent, He didn't quite crack it at the South African level just because they probably have an overabundance of that kind of player. For instance, had he had the exact same skills in Australia, I wonder if he just plays a little bit more just because they've struggled to fill those spots.
0: Yeah, that's quite true, you know, because things happen in a weird way in cricket, I suppose. Like now, if you look at South Africa, there's a whole influx of openers across the board you know you have all these talented openers just coming through and for David during his time there were just so many all-rounders that were making their way through Behadin, Morris you know the guys you you mentioned all of them.
1: Yeah Pesla is probably another one as well like there's been a lot of guys in that kind of position having their they batting probably five six seven eight and bowling so it's really interesting now how hard is it for him to make the decision to go pack at that point? It would have been a no-brainer,
0: I will tell you. You know, because you are looking at your options. You are looking at yourself. He was 31 when he signed pack, and he's looking at his options. Albi Morkel, one of the mm. best white ball players in South Africa, did not represent SA for long. And that's something that will stick on someone's mind, you know. Mm. Here is a player whom you idolize, whom you no is one of the best, but he never got a proper run in the white ball side because the team was settled and there were good players in there. And then here you are, you're trying to develop your game. You are just getting there. And then you have your Morris, you have your Faham Beardin here. It's very easy to go Colpak from there.
1: The other interesting thing in your article about this is that he sort of thought, okay, I'll go Colpac and then I'll pick up a bunch of franchise leagues which makes sense when you look at him as a player. He's probably more known for white ball. I know he had a very good career for Sussex in in first-class cricket. I think he averages around just over 30 with the bat and around 30 with the ball. So very solid first-class cricketer. But it would have made sense for him to go to T20 cricket. But he actually, when he went cold pack, he did the opposite of what almost every other cold pack player does. And he, he just had a really poor year, didn't he?
0: He had a horrendous year. As he puts it, he had one of the worst years in his career. He was very close to giving up. That's how bad it was.
1: So was he thinking that he might be... I'm just having a look at his numbers. So 2017, he made 81 runs in 18 T20 games at a strike rate of 108. (laughs) Uh, If you're wondering what a very bad year is, that is very much the definition. And he averaged 22 with the bat. He bowled okay in first-class group, but averaged 22 with the bat. Is he thinking, well, I'm over 31, maybe that's it? Or was he just thinking that he had to tweak something and get it right? Because it's a weird age... Because you could easily think, maybe that's it, I gave it a go, I went to England, Uh, I played for South Africa, it wasn't for me, I'll go and coach at a school or something. Or the other thing you think is, nah, something's wrong here.
0: What he said to me was, because I asked him about his life after cricket, and his response was, if you had asked me this question, i for one or two spots in the SA side. For him, when I was talking to him about four years ago, I would have told you that, After cricket, I'm not getting involved in cricket anymore. After his playing career, he was done. Mm. And that will speak to his mindset at the time. He didn't see himself lasting a year or two there. He was already exploring his options. And luckily for him, he has a degree in internal auditing. And I think he was considering going behind a desk and working somewhere.
1: Do you know what? Of all the cricketers that I would have thought there's a possibility that they would have a degree in internal auditing, I don't think the guy with the (laughs) Foo Fighters haircut with the incredible block shoulders was at the top of my list. So that's a hell of a fact for you just to drop there. I like that. And then what you really see in that period sort of after 2017 – is he sort of becomes what I would call a sort of a B-level T20 player. And I don't mean that in any disrespectful way, but what I mean is you don't see him pop up in some of the more major leagues. What you really see is him sort of floating around the other ones and sort of chipping away. It wasn't like he was instantly trusted as a, as a major T20 player straight away, was he?
0: No, he wasn't. And his first T20 gig, I think it was in Bangladesh, and he was there as a replacement player. And he didn't play much. You know, he was just that guy, I think they just needed someone and he popped up on a screen somewhere and then they picked him up. And he really had to graft hard to get to the position where he is. And I think sometimes for a person like David Visser, it's very easy for him to spend time in the nest, just working, 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 working with no direction, just because you
1: are failing. And he's got that energy, right? So he's thinking, so there are probably times when he probably did stuff that harmed him rather than fix things. I want to talk about how he changed his game a little bit. So one thing that I've noticed is that he's a perfect, what I would call like T20 all-rounder in that he has a real spot for his bowling. So there's a lot of T20 all-rounders. Most people aren't good enough to play as a batter or as a bowler, right? There's very few players that are, but the really good all-rounders are the ones that at least slot into each section of the game. So for him, it's really death batting and death bowling. His bowling, you've said he's not that fast, but he's quite strong and he hits the pitch quite hard mm-hmm. and he's very clever. And there's something that you talked about in the piece where you talked about how because he thinks as a batter and he was sort of brought up as a batter, he's almost like one step ahead of players when he's bowling. And that is a really handy thing to be at the death. Mm-hmm. Yeah,
0: you know, uh, here's a guy who, to save his career, he worked on his batting. The bowling came afterwards. And the funny thing is, as he puts it you know it it just happened you know like one of those moments of epiphany he's playing golf with albie Morkel, and then he's looking at Albie's swing and then he's like wow but that's how this guy plays his white ball this is how he bats and he goes back to work on that and now as he's working on that he learns how to hurt bowlers the most and now as he's working on his bowling himself He tries to avoid the areas that
1: a proper T20 batsman would hurt you. So one of the things I noticed, and I was trying to work out if I'd never seen this before because I haven't watched him play enough or whether it had changed. But reading your article, I realized he's probably changed and I, I probably hadn't seen this. But he had one of the most open faces of a bat that I have seen in international cricket in a long time. Actually, you might be old enough to remember Ijaz Ahmed, who played for Pakistan, who used to hold the bat like an axeman with this incredible open face. It's not something you see that often in, t- in any cricket or in international cricket these days. And when I was watching Visa sometimes, there was one time quite early on when he was playing for Namibia where I thought to myself, oh, he must be doing this because... He's trying to hit a ball in a certain place. And then it turned out, the more I watched, the more I realized, no, he's setting up this way. So he's always got a different... And it, not, it wasn't just him. JJ Smith, I noticed, had a very similar thing. So obviously that he's sort of molding this kind of... It's almost like a combination of a baseball and a golf swing into modern T20 batting, isn't it? Mm.
0: Yeah. After his epiphany with golf, he went back and then he started watching all these bunch of videos and I suppose golf did not give him the, the clear picture and a penny dropped for him and he started watching baseball. And then as he puts it, he had to relearn. And this is a guy who plays a lot of T10 and, you know, T10 is all about hammering the bowler. And mm. he went back to the very, very basics of, you know, you give a kid a bet right now, they would hold it the way Visa holds his bat, mm. Very not technical not cricket-wise. He had to unlearn the technique. And I think this is where T20 is heading towards, you know, where players rely less on their proper cricketing technique and go to, you know, proper baseball or golfing techniques, combine the two, and then you have the best betting setup.
1: Yeah, I mean, you also, you've seen golfers like Bryson DeChambeau do similar things, haven't you, that have they've gone off and studied and then come back. It's not a surprise in cricket. I think it was more a surprise that the bat face was so obvious because we've seen players like Josh Butler come with new ways of swinging and we've seen, you know, the sort of Andre Russell extreme power positions and we have seen those things before, but usually it's still with a fairly conventional bat. It's really interesting. And then I'm assuming for him... His age and the sort of person he is, the sort of person he comes across in your piece, which is, as you say, restless and energy, but also a very sort of a giving person and uh, likes to listen to other people. And it must be a very good career thing for him to be with a team like Namibia because he's now played all around the world, right? And uh, the last couple of years, he's gone from being a fringe South African player to being a very respected T20 player And the Namibia series. Well, the Namibia performance in the World Cup has probably helped him even more so, But he seems to me like the sort of person who would be an ideal coach. He sort of taught himself how to bat twice, taught himself how to bowl, went through the low lows, knows what it's like to represent South Africa, knows what it's like to represent associate teams, knows what it's like to go on the circuit and try and get yourself paid and all those sorts of things. He really does seem like someone who really shouldn't be lost to cricket and should go forward and continue to coach and work with young cricketers.
0: Yeah, true, because when you make your way through, when you learn the hard way, you just don't know what not to do. You also know how to relate to other people. And I think this is one of the most, how can I put it? This is something that people don't look at, you know, when they look at coaches and mentors. and You see a guy like Donnie, very successful, amazing cricketer. I think great captain. But then I really doubt that he could shepherd other people because of his career path. I have this thing in my mind where a person who really goes through the low lows. I listened to one of your chats with uh, Daniel Gallen when you were speaking about Faf Duplessis, And that's the Mm. sense I get from Visa. He knows what it is like to be unwanted.
1: Yeah, I think someone like Dhoni, if he's going to be a great coach, he's going to be a great coach because he has a supernatural feel for cricket and he knows how to pull a player into a specific role to make the best out of them. But what he doesn't know what it's like, more often than not, is what it's like to spend two or three years where no one wants you Mm -hmm. and where you have to reform your game and those sorts of things, which is why I thought someone like Visa was quite interesting. But it should be pointed out that despite the fact he's 36 and not that far away from 37 – and I'm sure he will be representing Namibia in the next World Cup, he did make a joke during your chat with him about Darren Stevens. Mm -hmm. I almost think he's too big to continue to play. He's too big a unit to continue to play into his 40s. I don't care how fit he is, mate. Um, Eventually, the strain of bowling and batting and being on all those planes and buses is going to come back to him. But this is probably the part of his career he's enjoyed the most. He's going to have the ability to travel around the world, make a lot more money than he has in his career so far, And also probably shepherd this generation of Namibian cricketers. You can see why he would push this as far as he can.
0: Yes, true. Because as I said earlier, you know, he said that if you had asked him three or four years ago, if he would go back and try to give back to cricket as a coach or something, he would have said, no, he had a career, but it wasn't fulfilling. But now it's more fulfilling. He has a better understanding of himself as an individual. And he has also developed the empathetic bits of him. He's now able to relate to other players. He's able to give back to them. So he might not play until he is 40, but he will certainly try as much as possible to give back to cricket. And this is why he is perfect for Namibia. I think you asked that earlier on. This is why he's perfect. Namibia is in his formative years. There's a bunch mm-hmm. of talented guys in there, but they need someone to help them go along. And I think if... He retires from playing. He's going to try to stay in that system, try to help out whoever is coaching, whether it's Albion and Pierre in the future, whoever it is, he will try to work with them because it's now become so fulfilling for him. It's mm. more than just a job now. It's something that he enjoys.
1: I'm going to finish this off by asking about you. Now, you are, if I'm not mistaken, were you not a former poet? Yeah, um, I did perform poetry for a few years. Uh, <laughs> here's my question. Who goes from poetry, right, to basically chronicling South African cricketers? And by South African cricketers, I almost mean Southern African cricketers at this point, because you've got Zimbabwean roots, and we're talking about a Namibian cricketer on this. But it's quite an interesting thing that you've decided, because David Wissa. when I saw that you written this article, my first thing was, I have to read this. Because he's just had a great World Cup, and he's such an interesting story, in that everyone kind of knows his name, but doesn't know that much about him. And I thought, this would be a really, really good piece, which it was. And there are so many cricketers like Visa who don't have the Namibian bit at the end of their career and they disappear. But you're not just talking to the ones who are trendy. You're talking to all sorts of random cricketers and random coaches and people in South African cricket. So how have you ended up there?
0: <laughs> well, after my career as a poet, you know, it, it was a hard career. It was during the Mkabe era. We, I was one of those guys who would go... Yeah, let's go burn down parliament, you know, power to the people, whatever, whatever, whatever. It wasn't quite good. And then when I moved to South Africa, I'm not one of those who moved out of fear. I just had to make a move. The cost of living was getting too high. You know, it was getting unbearable. I moved here. I had an entrepreneurship career and then COVID happened. Just before COVID, the economy happened and my business crumbled. So I'm sitting here. Having written satire before, mocked the government, having been a poet before. And I'm thinking, I've always wanted to be a writer. I've always been writing stuff. Why not invest this in the sport that I fight with my wife over? I want to watch cricket. She wants to watch whatever. We fight over the remote and then (laughs) I lose, obviously. So I decided, you know what? I'm going to make this my vocation.
1: And are you drawn to the sort of players where perhaps the stories haven't been told? That's what I feel from like sort of my sort of side, like looking coaches and players that you've talked to. Is it that or are you trying to work out things and it's easier to talk to the players who are not quite stars? Like what's sort of driving you to end up with a player like David Visa and some of the other players that you've talked to?
0: I think I love telling stories. You know, I always say that. And I think some of the best stories, as you say, are the untold stories, you know, the stars. Everyone wants to tell the story of a star. Everyone wants to tell it about a story. And it can be told in a number of ways. But then I believe these are the untold stories. You know, they are rich. You know, they create this human connection. It's funny how I believe that people get inspired by all sorts of things, all sorts of random things. You know, you get guys who have never... I try to get in touch with guys who didn't quite make it in professional cricket. And somehow... A story from someone like that can actually inspire someone to go further.
1: Mm.
0: And uh, so I I just tried to get all these guys to be out there.
1: Beautiful. Well thank you very much for your story on the inspiring David Visa. Thank you for having me, man. Thanks for listening to Red Inca. There is more information on my guests available in the show notes, including their Twitter profiles if they have one. This is the important bit though. No, Please review on Apple Podcasts or anywhere, really. Share it on all the social medias and just get it out there. If you can, act it out in plays on your balcony with your loved ones. This podcast is made possible by the people who support us at Patreon, so thanks to those who already do. And there is a link to Patreon in the show notes as well. Red Inca is made by me, Jared Kimber. Nick McCorriston makes everything sound better for your ears. And the theme tune is called The Prisoner by the Red Crickets.